All right, we're in Romans chapter 6 on Sunday nights. We've been going through Romans. And uh, tonight, I'm going to read through it first, kind of the text we're doing. That way we can grab hold of the, the, the content and the argument. Now, last week, if you remember, we started out at verse 1, and we only did 1 through 4. And last week, we focused on baptism and what baptism means, the idea of being identified with Christ. And so we, we really keyed in on this idea of baptism. We answered, a, uh, Paul answers a, an expected question after we understand the grace of God. Should we just continue on sinning? He says, by no means. And then we talked about baptism. This week we're going to go farther. Now I want you to key on, on three words for chapter 6. There's three key words. We've been sharing this the last couple of weeks. The first word that, that you need to understand is no. Okay, that's a key word in chapter 6. The second key word is reckon. And the third key word is present. Okay, those are really the three words that will unlock the entire chapter and what Paul is arguing. And we're going we're gonna to get through the knowing stage and the reckon, and just beginning the present stage tonight as we get into it. So let's go ahead and read it together, and then, uh, and then we will uh, start to, to go through it. All right, chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this... That our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should, be, should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Praise God for that. Let me go ahead and pray and and we'll get into the word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this Wonderful encouragement, Lord, just reading those words, for you are not under law, but under grace, and how freeing that is to know. We thank you, Lord, that you've done the work for us on that cross, that, Lord, from start to finish, it's all about you, and we thank you so much for that wonderful grace we experience, and now, Lord, we ask that you teach us, help us to have understanding 
that we might apply your word to our lives, that we might be doers of your word and not hearers only. We thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, as Paul enters into this chapter 6, and again, we're not going to go back through verses 1 through 4, but I do want to point out to you a little pattern that might help us in understanding the chapter. There's a pattern of death and life. Now, normally when we speak about the cycle of life, we refer to it as life and death. Not so in the Christian life. In the Christian life, we look at it from death to life. And that's the pattern we're going to see all through uh, chapter 6 here. J- just for a moment, I'm going to point a few things out to you, and you can kind of uh, go through this real quick with me. Verse 2, we see death, and verse 4, we see life. Do you see that there? Verse 2 is death, and, and, and you, if you have a Bible, it might be easier for just for this part to look at your own Bible, but verse 2, we see uh, death, and verse 4, we see life. Then verse 5, We do the math, or we reckon, and it says in verse 5, For if we have been united together in likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. So that's where we reckon ourselves uh, from death to life. Then then we look at verse 6, and verse 6 again is about death, that we've died. uh, Then verse 7, we have life in Christ, And then verse 8, we have a reckoning. Do you all see that, how that works? There's a reckoning of doing the math. It's adding these truths up. And verse 8 says, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. There we see that reckoning. Verse 10, we see death and life. And then verse 11, again, we have the reckoning, the math. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's a pattern there in Romans chapter 6 that Paul really wants us to understand. And it's important for us to understand that we are dead. The old man is dead, and the new man is alive and walks in newness of life. And you might say, well, pastor, I don't totally feel like I'm walking in newness of life all the time, especially when my kids are getting crazy in the household, or especially when someone's doing something I didn't like, or especially when I'm driving in traffic on the freeway, or whatever, go on and on, those things that you might not feel like your newness of life. But I want you to know that, that it's not really about what you feel, it's about the truth of what is in Christ Jesus, and that's really important. So let's look at verse 5 as we walk in the newness of life in this resurrected life. Verse 5 says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death. Now, what, what was likeness again? Uh, what are we talking about there? Uh, well, Paul's continuing this idea of baptism, being identified with Christ. Okay, and so he's saying that he's arguing, he's continuing his argument from the fact that we have been crucified with Christ and that baptism we partook in, not that it saves us from sin, we recognize that, but it's a tangible, physical thing that you and I can do that helps us understand what's happened spiritually, okay? And so, so that likeness of his death, that, that symbolism of being put into the grave, and then it says, 
certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Not only that coming up out of the water, but also that future resurrection. Just like he was risen from the dead, so we will too. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, united together with him, this is describing a union. Those of you who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, you've trusted in him. You've said, I want that for myself. I no longer will live for me. I want to live for Christ and for God, for his kingdom. I want, I want that gift that he gave to me on that cross. For those of you who have been united to him, you, there's a union that has happened. Now, you may not always feel that that union's there, but it has happened. In fact, the word union is to be closely identified with or to be planted together or maybe graft in. I have this picture. We went to Maui last, this past August. And uh, while we were there, we saw these incredible trees. No, go to the first one. You ruined my whole presentation, BG. I'm just kidding around with you. The fir- there you go. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm totally joking with you, Miji. Um, so, so this picture here is a rainbow eucalyptus tree. Never seen them. And when you look at them up close, go to the next picture, Miji. Um, there's the next picture. It looks like somebody took, a, or actually I should say, it looks like crayons grow out of this tree. Like it's the bark and it's got these fluorescent colored beautiful trees. But while I was there looking at these trees on the road to Hana, I saw this happen, the next picture, which is a totally different tree that has grown into this eucalypt, rainbow eucalyptus. Now, the reason I like this, this picture uh, is it's easy to see this union that has happened between these two trees. Uh, obviously, we know that that other tree is not near as pretty. And so the illustration only goes so far. I'm not saying you're the ugly one, life sucking off of Christ. I'm not saying that, okay? But what I'm trying to say is that that's, that's the illustration I want you to think of when we think of our union with Christ, that we've been planted together now, that, that we are inseparable. If you're going to separate these two trees, both trees would have to be destroyed, and it's not possible uh, to destroy our relationship with Christ. And we'll see that as we get into Romans 8, that, that uh, Paul says, for I am convinced that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. So we'll, we'll get to that. But we've been given this unit, union. We've been united together in the likeness of his death and certainly also in the likeness of his resurrection. So what are we saying? Well, we're saying our participation in his death, which is our believing on him, okay? Our participation in his death makes our participation in his resurrection certain, okay? That's important. So when you ask, when someone asks you, are you going to heaven? It is certain because I have been crucified with Christ. As far as God is concerned, this one who believed in Jesus has shared in his death and is certain I will share in his resurrection. That 
is wonderfully encouraging. Now, did you notice what work you did it to this point? No. (laughs) There's nothing on your part. The work is Christ, and we participate in that work. And in us, God does this incredible miracle uh, of, of putting to death the old man and giving us the new life. Look at what it says in verse 6, knowing this, okay? God wants you to know this. Paul wants you to know this. Now, when, when someone says knowing this, and especially when it's coming from the Bible, what it's saying is that this is something that really important that you need to know, and it's truth. It's not speculative. It's not a maybe. This is the fact. Knowing this, our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. That old man, which is self-patterned after Adam, uh, as we've talked about earlier on in the book of Romans, Uh, That old man has now been put to death, specifically crucified with Christ. It is impossible for the old man to ever be reformed in us. There's only one solution, and God understands this. The old man must be sentenced to death because there is no reform. You can't you can't uh, take that old man, that sin nature, and reform it. And, and what I mean by reform is make it obedient to the law of God. Because it can't be. And you can try all you want, but it will never be obedient to the law of God because that's sin nature. So the only solution is to put to death that old man. And now we see God's grace at work. The old man has been sentenced to death, put to death, and, and God's grace works in us so that that old man is crucified and it's something Christ has done in us. What a wonderful truth for us to understand and know. Now, again, it's not that you are walking around as the, the, uh, the new image of Jesus, okay? I'm trying to think of a way to say that. It's not that you are this beautiful image of Jesus walking around everywhere you go. Certainly we want to be lights, but it's the, here's the real fact of the matter. No matter what phase you are on in your maturing in Christ, whether you've been walking with Christ for years or whether you just got born again, you, the old man, has been crucified, and now you walk in newness of life. That's important for you to understand. Ephesians 4, through 24 kind of explains this for us. And Ephesians 4, says that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So in Ephesians 4, Paul helps us understand this, uh, this, uh, these two characters or natures a little bit better. And the old man is to be put off. It's been crucified with Christ. And we put on the new man. That's who we, wanna, we, we, are, uh, we are walking in now. That new person that's patterned after uh, uh, the, the uh, righteousness of God. 
in holiness. And so we put off that, that old man. So let's talk about crucified with him for a moment. And this is really important because there is a, a the, the verb for crucified is, in a, is not in a present continuous sense. And what I mean by that is that uh, Paul doesn't write, for we are being crucified with him. That's not what Paul writes. Nor does Paul write that Jesus is being crucified for us. It's one of the reasons why we don't have Jesus on the cross. Because that work is finished when he said it is finished. And so the, the verb here is in the aorist passive. And I know, that actually, by the way, this is the hardest part about learning uh, biblical languages is actually learning English so you understand what you're talking about. What does the aorist passive mean? Well, the aorist passive is always translated with a helping verb so we can understand what's going on. And the helping ver- verb here is was or were, okay? So it kind of carries that sense of past. It's, it's behind us. So, uh, so Paul writes that I have been, I, I was, the old man uh, was crucified with him. Not is being crucified, but was crucified with him. Wow, that's amazing <laughs> when we think about that. In fact, Paul even speaks in Galatians 2.20 he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Once again, in that past sense, it's already happened. It's not continuing on. The, the, that work is done The crucifixion of the old man is over. The old man has been put to death. From that moment that you receive the wonderful gift of salvation from Jesus Christ, the old man is dead. No more. And it can't be raised up to life. That's a wonderful truth for us to understand. Because when people say, are you living the crucified life? I say, no. I'm living a resurrected life. Now, I understand that I still sin and as well as you do, and, and, uh, and really this is all about progress in him, right? We're making progress. We're maturing. And eventually at the moment that we pass or we are taken up, caught up with him in the clouds, that's when that work is fully finished with us, and that'll be wonderful, that point in time. But we're looking for progress, and we're no longer living a cruise. We're no longer being crucified. That's finished. The work is done. So quit putting the expectation on yourself. The expectation is on Christ and the work he did. And that's why Paul says, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. I, I put my trust in him. I believe that he will do this work in me. And put away, (laughs) that old man is dead. So, no longer slaves to sin. Augustine, St. Augustine actually explained it this way, and it's good. Well, almost really good. I I know it's hard to believe that I'm going to say I disagree with Augustine from the pulpit because I don't think I'm in any way his equal. But (laughs) 
I'll share how I disagree in just a moment. Augustine explained it this way. Adam before the fall was able to sin. Adam after the fall was not able to not sin. Do you understand that? Before the fall, he was able to sin if he wanted to. After the fall, he wasn't able to not sin because now he had that sin nature. Believers in Christ are now able to not sin. That's the difference between us and Adam. And then he goes on to say, in heaven we will not, uh, we are not, will be not able to sin. Okay, and this is where I kind of disagree with Augustine. Not that there will be sin in heaven, because we recognize that, that uh, once the work in us is finished, but but we, rather than not able to, I would say that we have victory over. It is finished. We no longer have any desire to sin. Uh, and so that's where I would say uh, I disagree with Augustine a little bit. And we can argue about that later if you want, if you're into that. But how does a slave become freed from sin? Only by death. Here's a little video I want to show you real quick. It's from the movie. differently. If you looked into a magic crystal and you saw your army destroyed and yourself uh, dead, if you saw that in the future, as I'm sure you're seeing it now, would you continue to fight? Yes. Knowing that you must lose? Come on, we can. All men lose when they die. All men die but a slave and a free man lose different things. They both lose life. Free man dies, he loses the pleasure of life. Slave loses its pain. Death is the only freedom a slave knows. That's why he's not afraid of it. That's why we'll win. Spartacus says death is the only freedom a slave has. And isn't that true? That's the only freedom really a slave gets from the master is death. And, and Spartacus <laughs> illustrates my point perfectly. Actually, I should say Paul's point perfectly is that we have been crucified with Christ. The old man has been crucified and, uh, with him and that body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. So if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you've died. That's it. It's finished. You need to know that. Okay, let's go on here. It says now, verse 8, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Amen. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. This change in the life of the one who is born again was understood and predicted as a feature of God's new covenant. Because of our new hearts, our innermost being wants to do God's will and to be slaves of righteousness. That's what is really amazing about this, that once we recognize that we have died with Christ, that we will also live with him, death no longer has any dominion over us, 
And now, that life that we live, we live unto God. We want to please God. That, that, that's the important part. There's been a change of heart. Ezekiel the prophet writes about this early on in the, uh, obviously, the, the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27 says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. As God is speaking through, the, uh, through Ezekiel, we see that there's a promise here about a open heart surgery. I remember a long time ago, uh, we watched some dumb romantic comedy. Uh, <laughs> this one was a dumb one. It was about a, a guy who gets heart surgery, but he gets like a different heart put in him, and now he has this, this love relationship with this other person of the guy who died, his wife, his, his widow, or whatever. I don't know. It was a dumb movie. But, but the guy was a different person after receiving this new heart. And uh, I'm not going to show you the illustration because it was a dumb movie. Most rom-coms are though, right? <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> so, I won't step on that because <laughs> I'm going to have to answer to Laura afterwards. Um. <laughs> uh, but God tells us that he's removing this heart of stone. What is the heart of stone? A, a, a heart that is unwilling to yield to God's spirit. Okay, a heart that is unwilling to yield to the spirit of God. That's the heart of stone. It's unmovable. It, it can't be moved. It's not penetrated by the love of God. And so God says that, that I will remove that heart of stone and put into you this heart of flesh. A heart of flesh that is, will yield to his spirit. And notice that it says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and you will keep my judgments and do them. This is something that with this new heart that you're going to receive, you're just going to have a desire to, 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 to please me as I give you this new heart. Like the dumb romantic comedy where the guy wants to to, he now becomes uh, in love with the widow, right? He changes. Um, but this is a much better story because God is actually taking from us that terrible nature and giving to us a brand new nature in him. It's so wonderful. So we move on to the reckoning stage. Romans six eleven. Likewise, you also reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, reckon. This, this is interesting. Reckon is actually the first commandment that Paul gives in Romans. It's a, in an imperative. And, and so do this is the idea. And, and I, as far as I could see, I believe that this is really the first commandment in Romans after Paul has gone through explaining where we were at in sin, how we couldn't save ourselves, and the wonderful grace of God. And now we get this first commandment, reckon. Well, what does it mean? Well, it's not like the, the, what you imagine in the South. I reckon. You know, I'm thinking about this, you know, whatever the case is. 
But this is actually a calculation. It's an accounting term, legizomai. And it means to make the, add up the numbers, to evaluate, to, to, to do the math, so to speak. And so we're told to reckon yourselves dead to, indeed to sin, but alive to God. Now, here's the important part. If you do simple math, we'll make it really simple for us. 5,600 minus 3,200 plus the square root of 5. I'm just kidding. No square root of 5. No, let's do simple math. 2 plus 2 equals 4, right? 2 plus 2 is always going to equal 4. It's not ever going to equal something different than 4 because that is the mathematical equation. And even if I can't add this up, the reality is if I have... Two apples and two apples, I have four apples. That's just the reality of the situation. It's never going to equal something different if I have two apples and two apples. It's never going to equal three apples. Even if I can't count, it's still four apples. And so when, when Paul says, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, this is the reality of the matter. When you understand this, when you know this, the result will be to reckon this, to do the math. Even if you have to learn the math, we learn the math from knowing. Now when we do that math, when we put it all together, we realize that I am dead indeed to sin. That's it. I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. That's great math. So am I worried about my salvation? No. Because God has done the work. I've done the math. I've added it all up. And the Christian life can be divided into two parts. If you were to summarize the two parts of the Christian life, it would be B.C. and A.D., certainly before Christ, and then A.D. after deliverance from the sin nature. That's who we are in Christ. But there was a time before Christ, and now there's a time after deliverance. Hiro Onoda was a Japanese soldier who came out of the jungle on Lubang Island in the Philippines in March 1974. He was the last Japanese imperial soldier to emerge from hiding, 29 years after the end of World War II. Hiro Onoda refused to give up and come out of the jungle, and there were more than four searches with family members on loudspeakers declaring the war was over. Leaflets were dropped in the jungle, telling him to surrender. The war is over. He would not reckon the war over and come out of the jungle. As he struggled to feed himself, Onoda's mission became one of survival. He stole rice and bananas from local people down the hill and shot their cows to make dried beef, triggering occasional skirmishes. Can you imagine these poor farmers? They're like, are you kidding me? The war's over. Stop it. Stop stealing from us. Stop starting wars with us. Stop it. And so as, as he did this, the turning point came on February 20th, 1974, when he met a young globetrotter, Norio Suzuki. Suzuki ventured to Lubang in pursuit of Onoda. He had heard about him. And Suzuki went and quietly pitched camp in the lonely jungle clearings and just waited. Finally, he heard, oi. Anoda eventually called out, 
and eventually began speaking with him. Suzuki then returned to Japan and contacted the government, which located Onoda Superior, Major Yoshimi Taniguchi, and he flew him to Lubang to deliver his surrender order in person. He, uh, Onodo surrendered only when his former commander flew there to reverse his 1945 orders to stay behind and spy on American troops. For those 29 years, Onoda could have been out of the jungle. He could have come out of the jungle. Certainly he was given the information that the war was over, but he never reckoned the war over. And sadly, some Christians still live that way. They live their lives that they're still at war with the flesh, that they're still warring against it, that they still have no hope, that they're in that jungle, and yet the war has been declared over. Jesus has already done the work. So reckon yourselves dead to sin. Reckon yourselves alive to God. So Paul goes on to say there in verse 12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey in it in its lust. You now have a choice. That's what's amazing. We no longer have to let sin reign. We have a choice to say, I don't want sin to reign. I want the reign of Christ in my life. Now the word lust here, it doesn't mean sex. The word lust Epithumeo, uh, sorry, I, I got it. Uh, whenever I get in the pulpit, I have trouble pronouncing other words. Epithumeo, uh, the word is actually not talking about sex at all. The word, is, when translated, it actually can be translated in two sentences in, in the Greek. One sense is a good sense, and that word would be desire. Like, for instance, uh, one who desires to be an elder desires a good thing. Or Jesus desiring to take uh, the last uh, the communion with his disciples. Those are good senses, positive sense. But it can also be translated in a bad sense in the Bible. And when it's translated as a bad sense, and the bad sense is always translated as lust. And what does it mean? Well, it means to take a it means to take a desire, a legitimate desire, and take that desire out of bounds. So for instance, is sex bad? No. Sex is good. God created it for the marriage relationship. But when it becomes in the bad sense, it means to take it out of those boundaries. To, whether it be heterosexual, homosexual, whatever the case is, it means to take that, what God created good, outside the bounds and, and, and use it for evil. Is money bad? No, money's not bad. But when we take it outside the bounds, when we have that lust for money, or as we're told in Scripture, the love of money, it takes it outside the bounds. Do you understand what I'm saying here? So, so Paul says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust." That your desire should be to take these things outside the boundaries. To, to, to go outside of how God created them for good and now abuse them. Rather, we submit ourselves to God now. So as we're thinking about this, 
as we're thinking about how to reckon ourselves to God, as we're trying to understand how come I still struggle at times with the sin nature, I think there's a secret here, and and you all are actually doing it right in this very moment. You're occupying your minds with Jesus Christ. And when our minds are occupied with the Lord Jesus Christ, it can't, there's no room to be occupied with sin. That's the secret here. That's the secret of reckoning ourselves dead to sin is to allow our minds to be occupied with the Lord Jesus Christ, to be occupied with that new nature, to put on him and put off the old self. That is the secret. And I, I really believe that there are many Christians who struggle with ongoing sin in their life because they're still stuck in that jungle believing that they have to war with the flesh when they have a new choice. They have a choice to occupy their minds with the Lord Jesus Christ. So Romans 3, 6, 13 now gives us a practical. So we've been, we've been understanding it from uh, real, what the reality is. Now let's get to pra- the practical. Do, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So here's the practical. You present your members. What does members mean? Well, the parts of your body, the things that that are a part of your body. Now we present those members to God, no longer to to the flesh. We're no longer presenting them to the flesh to do the things of unrighteousness, but rather we're presenting our hand, that hand that would be used to take something that wasn't ours, or, or that mind that is used to covet something that doesn't belong to us, or, or whatever the case is, those members, now we're going to do something different with those members. Rather than take, we're going to give. We're going to show charity and love to the other. Rather than covet, we're going to thank God. See, we've read about that in Romans 1, remember? They neither glorified God nor give, gave thanks to God, but their, their thinking became futile as they rejected God. So now we're going to commit our minds to giving thanks, and thanksgiving to God, and no longer uh, focused on coveting what we don't have. That's the practical here. Your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion, last verse, verse 14, over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. God, uh, Spurgeon writes this, God has so changed your nature by his grace. When you sin, you shall be like a fish on dry land. You shall be out of your element and long to get into a right state again. You cannot sin for you love God. The sinner may drink sin down as the ox drinketh down water, but to you it shall be as the brine of the sea. You may become so foolish as to try the pleasures of the world, but they shall be no pleasures to you because your very nature has changed. In a sense... It'd be like a butterfly trying to act as a caterpillar. How ridiculous is that? 
The caterpillar has been transformed into a butterfly. It no longer belongs stuck to a plant, but is ready to fly. You've been transformed, dear Christians. (laughs) You're a different person. Now present yourselves to God as such. Let's pray. We'll get there. We've got to pray first. Yeah, Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness toward us. And we thank you, Lord, for these truths. How encouraging it is, Lord, that you have done the work. That you have paid the price. Lord, that you have changed our nature. We thank you, dear God. We look forward to that time when we meet you face to face. But now, Lord, we confess our sin to you those moments where we've submitted our members to the lust of the flesh, those moments that when we've taken things that you've created as good and taken them out of bounds, we confess that to you. Forgive us, Lord. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and you you want that new heart, you want that new nature, you pray right now, Lord Jesus, forgive me. I want to be saved. Thank you for dying on that cross for me. We thank you, dear God, for your wonderful love. And as we come to your table this evening, Lord, meet us here. I, if I could get uh, four volunteers to come forward, help us distribute these elements. Benny, do you need a tray back there? Do you, you want to just take these? You can just keep it back there. Thank you.
How wonderful the grace of Christ. As the Lord met with the disciples in that upper room, he took the bread and gave thanks. He broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. Then taking the cup, he said, this is the new covenant of my blood which has been shed for you. Take and drink. Lord God, we thank you so much. We thank you that you've given us this wonderful ordinance. Lord, that that's a physical representation of communion with you, meeting with you. Lord, that if we could make it a part of us, we would, we would eat it. And so, Lord, we thank you that you've given us this ability to remember you. And we look forward, Lord, to your coming. And we say, Maranatha, come, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of my favorite benedictions in the New Testament is actually in Jude. And so I want to read this benediction over you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Give us you guys. Thank you.